You are listening to Islam and Liberty podcast. If you are looking for more, you can find it on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. We have articles, research papers, and conferences on all aspects of Islam and freedom. Today, we have a discussion between Imam Sheikh Dr. Usama Hassan and Ali Salman. Usama Hassan is Head of Islamic Studies at Quilliam. During the discussion, he sketched out a diagram to simplify and illustrate his points and you can download the diagram on our show notes. Welcome to Islam and Liberty Network um, special podcast. Uh, today our guest is Imam Dr. Usama Hassan, uh, who is uh, based in London but currently visiting Kuala Lumpur. Uh, Dr. Usama is the head of Islamic studies at Quilliam International Foundation and which is the world's first uh, counter-violent extremism organization and um, he is author of several important uh, papers and co-author also of several books talking about religious freedom talking about muslim and non-muslim uh, relationship and uh, what is important that he comes from um, an islamic uh, legal background and um, he has been associated with different civil society movements in in europe in britain in particular and very actively engaged in, in discussion when it comes to Islam and the West. And uh, we thought that um, we record uh, this conversation to uh, learn more about uh, his views on particularly uh, when, we, we, when we offer refer to uh, what is called Darul Kufr and Darul Islam, uh, the usual binary worldview which is projected by traditionalists, uh, especially in the context of Islamic fiqh and Islamic jurisprudence. And so this um, tends to uh, promote an exclusive worldview and tends to promote uh, also especially create problems uh, for Muslims and non-Muslims in especially multicultural societies, um, um, such as Britain or in Malaysia, which is very multicultural, multi-racial, multi-religion. Um, and so uh, today's conversation is is about this this concept, but also about then linking it later on with the uh, religious freedom. Maybe we'll we'll start with uh, by asking Dr. Osama this um, for our understanding. Uh, what is uh, the position, uh, rather the under- conventional understanding of uh, Islamic theology, particularly Islamic fiqh, because theology can be more broad than just fiqh when it comes to this this division of the world between Muslims and non-Muslims. Dr. Osama, please. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Uh, with the name of God, uh, the merciful, the, the compassionate. So first of all, thank you, Ali, for a, a very kind introduction and for this invitation. I'm honored to, to come and speak to you here. So th- this is very interesting because basically what is known as international relations in Islamic fiqh was known as siyar. And it was a very sophisticated theory which was developed within the first two centuries of Islam. One of the most famous writers on this is Imam Muhammad bin Hassan al-Shaybani, who was one of the senior students of Imam Abu Hanifa, who is the earliest of the, uh, the imams of, of the four well-known Sunni legal schools. There were many other schools, of course, but uh, the four well-known Sunni ones. Imam Shabani wrote a book called Kitab al-Siyar and he articulated what lasted for centuries as the, the generally accepted uh, Muslim view of international relations. And uh, I'm actually going to draw the diagram because I think it, uh, while I'm explaining it, he divided, the idea was that the world is divided into Darul Islam, which is the, the house of Islam or the land of Islam, and Darul Kufr, 
the land of rejection or the land of unbelief, or basically land of non-Islam. And this was territorial because because early Islam, of course, the Prophet وسلم, uh, was persecuted in Mecca and he was uh, then given power by the, by the Ansar in Medina. And uh, what you have is Darul Kufr was uh, later subdivided, or oh, sorry, you know, later, I mean, in the theory, including Imam Shaybani's, into Darul Harb, which is the land of war, yeah, and, and Darul Sulh, which would be the land covered by a peace treaty. In other words, a war of la- a war, a land of war and a land of peace. Right. Hmm. And what uh, the earliest example was? Let me ask you this question: What is the earliest example that you can think of of, of a binary division of a territory in, in Islam, where one territory is Islamic and the other is non-Islamic, or where one tri- territory is a place yeah, of I war think and it, the other? Well, what, his, what do you say? Well, my understanding is that this. This understanding perhaps goes to very early stages of history, when, when, uh, when um, you know, even from the second Caliph Umar, when Muslims started uh, expanding their yes. empire, and so there was this idea that we need to, you know, conventional idea that we need to expand our yes. territory to other places yes. and sort of conquer the world, yeah. as political in, in yeah. a political sense, and but also there were. This this religious obligation to expand to expand the word of God. Yeah. Okay. Now, thank you for that. I mean, that that's what uh, I think a lot of Muslims would say that. And, yeah. Uh, and it's and as you said, it's rooted in history. It's it's absolutely right. But actually, the, this whole earliest division goes back to the the Prophet himself. Because the earliest example of mm-hmm. Darul Islam Darul Kufr is Mecca and Medina. So sure. when the Prophet after Hijrah in Medina, Medina was Darul Islam. Hmm. And Mecca was actually Darul Kufr, right. <laughs> because you had the 360 idols around the Kaaba, and there was sure. pagan polytheist practice under the Quraysh. And then, of course, the Meccan declared war on the Prophet first. They, right. they tried to destroy the Muslims, firstly in Mecca with persecution and torture, and then the boycott, eventually forcing them to leave and try to kill the Prophet and his followers many times. But then they sent, when they failed to do that, uh, they brought armies to Medina. So, of course, uh, Battle of Uhud especially. But uh, the Battle of Badr as well before that, Battle of Badr, Wahud, Khandaq, you know, Ahzab, Hunayn. So there's loads of battles. And so for a while, you see, Medina was Darul Islam and Makkah was Darul Harb. And then Makkah, actually at one point, was then changed from Darul Harb, a land of war, to a land of peace. And, and when was that? You know, the Makkah. The Fatah Makkah? Almost. No, at Fatah Makkah it became Darul Islam, you see. Right. And the Prophet before. took over. When, uh, Sulayh Hudaybiyah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Sulayh Hudaybiyah, yeah. the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, yeah. uh, was now a peace treaty because the, the Meccans realized sure. they couldn't defeat the Muslims. Yeah. They tried many times. Badr, Uhud, you yeah. know, Khandaq, the trench battle of the trench, mm-hmm. Hunayn, all the rest of it. And they, just, they couldn't. So eventually they mm-hmm. they agreed to the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah with the Prophet with condition which Sayyidina Umar thought were uh, very weak for the Muslims, but the Prophet mm. said, I'm taking the long view, and that was called the Great Conquest. In Nafatahna, like a Fatham Mubina, refers not to the conquest of Makkah. You know, mm. God said, mm. We're mm. giving you a clear conquest, mm. victory. It refers to the peace treaty because it opened up religious freedom, actually, mm. and the preaching of Islam, many more people, thousands, yeah. uh, turned into Islam. Okay, so that's really what the original ideas were based on uh, mm. from the seer of the Prophet himself. But as you said, uh, absolutely correctly, the uh, the idea of taking the word of God uh, through preaching, and if people didn't allow you to spread the, the message, they would be fought. 
Mm. And, uh, and, you know, people will debate and should debate whether it was the Muslims were forced to do this or whether they wanted to, or they, they thought they had to conquer or, or, what the, or what the rationale for it was. But it, it certainly happened all of Arabia. Mm. Uh, came, came under Islam, I would argue, firstly through preaching, and in fact, Sayyidina Abu Bakr only sent the armies around Arabia when they rebelled, when the, what's called the apostasy, the wars of apostasy, Harub uh, al-Ridda happened. But then, of course, after that, especially Sayyidina Umar's time, when the Muslims defeated, basically, the Byzantine Empire and armies in Syria and the Persian empires, and, and, and also conquered Egypt. So uh, the land of Islam ex- expanded hugely. And the fiqh in Islam had to uh, always adapt to the changing situation. And, and then, of course, the Muslim uh, lands expanded further and further. North Africa, Spain, pushed into India early on. Muslims reached China. The Sahaba, it is said, reached China, for example. So the fiqh included, you know, where can you practice your Islam in fully and where you can't. So although fiqh was not born at, uh, at least in Sahaba, or at least hundred. Maybe. Yeah, well, it, it, uh, it wasn't articulated. It wasn't. I mean, yeah. you know, because fiqh just means understanding and doing what is right. Yeah, I mean, in a, as, a, as, a court, as a as a legal code, the fiqh wasn't born. No, exactly, it, it wasn't written down or yeah. it wasn't yeah. uh, systemized, that and that's really what the madhabs did. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so the as I said, the Hanafi and So that's why Imam Shaybani's book is very important because it's uh, it's one of the earliest articulations of seer, which is international Islamic relations. Now, I'm not an expert in international relations, and I don't know if anything had been written before that by mm. other empires like the Romans or the mm. Babylonians or the Persians or whatever. Maybe other people uh, will uh, can enlighten me on that. But it seems to me that it's certainly very enlightened. I mean, this is ninth century of the Western calendar we're talking about. Mm. This is medieval times, but it's quite sophisticated because now I'd like to talk about, uh, so just for our listeners, just to repeat, the idea is that the world is divided into two types of territories, the lands of Islam, or the house of Islam, and the lands of non-Islam, kufr. Uh, just a clarification, yeah. you mentioned this goes back to the Prophet Muhammad, uh, yeah. sallam, but did the Prophet use these words? No, no, okay, yeah, that's a good question. The there are Some scholars would claim that th- these terms have some basis in some of the hadith, hmm. but uh, it's, it's a fairly uh, weak argument. Uh, except that, uh, no, so the Prophet did not use these terms. Okay. These are inventions yes. of the Fuqaha, Darul Islam, Darul Kufr, Darul Haq. Yeah, we should be clear about that. Yeah, yeah, this, exactly. this is not in the in the Quran or, or, or kind of establishing the Sunnah. It is Ishtihad. It is the Ishtihad of sure. early great jurists. And it was very sophisticated uh, yeah. Ishtihad, in my view. So you have the, you know, the lands of Islam, the lands of non-Islam. And remember, the lands of non-Islam are divided into two, either land of war or land of peace. Now, who lives in these territories? The, uh, the people who live in Darul Islam are... Okay, so, so tell me, what class of people live in Darul Islam? The first answer is obvious. Well, Muslims. Exactly, that's the first one. You're Muslims. But who else lives? People of book. Yeah, people of the book. And, uh, and, and what do they have to do to uh, live there peacefully? Well, uh, I, I think the basic uh, idea is they have to... One condition would be properly religious freedom. Yeah, uh, but th- th- they had to they had to uh, pay a protection tax. Yeah, which is jizya. Jizya is a protection right. tax. Yeah. And so these people are known as dhimmis, uh, yeah, hmm. which means protection. And they're also known as mu'ahad, people with a with uh, an agreement, with an agreement, with, yeah. with a covenant. Hmm. Now, people of the book Ahlul Kitab is traditionally often in our books people refer it to who are the people of the book. 
So Jews and Christians. Jews and Christians, right? That's that's primarily what most Muslims say. But this is true in, the, in Arabia. The only other significant religious community, apart from the Muslims and the Mushrikeen, the pagan polytheists, were the Jews and the Christians. They were mm -hmm. there in Arabia. They'd been there for, for centuries. But, you know, within the first two centuries of Islam, Islam expanded into Persia, came across the Magians, the Rastrians, into India, came across Hindus and Buddhists. And uh, what's not well known is that the Muslims there treated the Zoroastrians or Magians, the Hindus and the Buddhists also as people of the book because they recognize that these people have ancient scriptures, that they had ancient prophets. And uh, even if they didn't believe in God, Zoroastrians for instance. Well, ultimately they do believe in the divine and ultimately I take the view that all of those religions have uh, Tawheed monotheism at their core somewhere, okay. right? Now, my Hindu friends tell me that there are eight philosophical schools of Hinduism, uh, of which one of them is atheist, but at least one is actually very strictly monotheistic. I see. Um, but, but, but the point is, it, it fits in. So, a lot of Muslims would say that, you know, the Jews and the Christians corrupted the religion of their founders, of mm. Moses and Jesus. Yeah. But the same argument was extended by the early Muslim scholars to these other religions as well. So, mm. Zoroaster, Sayyidina Ali, we have Sayyidina Ali, Imam Ali radiallahu anh, mm. on record, saying that Zoroaster was the prophet of God, mm. right? Imam Shafi writes about this as well. He quoted that, Imam Shafi. We're in Malaysia, uh, strongly Shafi country. People should know Imam Shafi mm. um, said that very clearly as well. He, he quoted Sayyidina Ali on this, that Zoroaster was the prophet of God and taught monotheism. And then later some of his people uh, introduced okay. uh, uh, dualism because the Zoroastrian religion, they talk about the forces of good and the forces of evil or even the god of light and the god of mm. dark. So it became strongly dualist. But actually, I've, I've, I've spoken to Zoroastrian priests and basically they agree there's the, the unity behind all of that. But they, they believe it's important to understand the world in, uh, in dualistic terms. And in Pakistan, you know, Allama Iqbal famously wrote, he said Islam acquired a Zoroastrian crust. He said Muslims became obsessed with uh, good and evil and mm. khair and shar w w without, um, without looking at how how evil is actually within the plan of God. It, it is against God, but God created Satan mm -hmm. for, a, for a reason, for a plan. Mm -hmm. And there's a unity behind it all. Anyway, but that's, that's a different discussion. Mm -hmm. My point was that the people of the book, uh, the Ahlul Kitab, mm -hmm. in early Islam, was extended to, uh, to Zoroastrians, the Magians, and mm -hmm. Hindus, and, uh, and Buddhists. So as long as they paid jizya, as long as they paid the protection tax. So this is all about Darul Islam now? This is still talking about Darul Islam. You have Muslims, then you have Dhimmis. There's a third category of people who I'll give you a clue, are present there. Well, I'll, I'll tell you actually. They don't live there, but they're present there. So they're basically visitors, yeah? Okay. And these could be relatives, mm. um, or they're, they're often traders actually. Yeah. They were often traders, because obviously trade makes mm. the world go around. And uh, merchants, you know, would cross and people carry on business, often regardless of wars or, mm. or, or the politics, etc. Et right, so you had three major classes of people. And what is interesting is that the visitors would be effectively issued with a visa. And the visa was called Aman, mm. which is, or Ahdul Aman, which is a, a covenant of security, a promise of security, safe passage. Mm. Visitors with Aman, which is safe passage. And the, uh, the principle was that the Prophet or the, or the Caliph would grant safe passage, but every Muslim could do so as well, because one of the female companions granted safe passage to one of her pagan relatives and she asked the Prophet, is this okay? Mm -hmm. and, and he said, Ya Ummahani, it was her name was, uh, he said, anybody you give safe passage to, we give safe passage to. So basically the idea was every Muslim is trustworthy. Uh, it's a bit like every citizen issuing a visa nowadays. Mm -hmm. That would be unthinkable, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, 
That's basically what was happening. And then over in Darul Kufur, uh, it uh, let's deal with uh, let's deal with peace first. <laughs> if you have a peace treaty, as Makkah and Medina did, then uh, the people there they might be Muslims they're living actually, although they were encouraged to move to non uh, to, to Darul Islam. But it was mainly non-Muslims, of course. Mm. But they were under a peace treaty, so they would uh, you know they were known as Muahid as well actually. But uh, obviously they're at peace. And then again, you would have visitors. So you'd have Muslims visiting mm. them, relatives, traders again, same thing. Now we come to the, the, the thorny on Darul Harb. The people in Darul Harb, what are they regarded as? So people who have declared war against yeah, Muslims? So if the place is at war, then they were known as Harbis. This term is still used by some people today. Harbi means literally a warrior, you know. Well, they also use it in Malaysia. Right. And interestingly, this, this term was used by certain political parties to uh, against certain political parties okay and declare them kafir harabi so okay. it's a it's a term which is even currently used here right okay so that's and uh, yeah. uh, so it's a mix of religion and politics but uh, this term is used here right so that's uh, that's news to me uh, well yeah so but it's a well-known term from the medieval fiqh text mm-hmm. they talk about kafir harbi because there's basically somebody who's darul kufur and is in darul harb so he's a non-believer, but also at war. Um, and and uh, this is actually in the medieval times when the default of international relations was basically war. So, you know, you had all these empires and they would, whenever they felt like it, they would expand and conquer and might was right and armies would conquer. So the, my understanding is the default position was, was war. But the exception was a peace treaty. And we'll come to it. And nowadays, it's the other way around. And, but just to finish yeah. on that, you could still have Muslims you could have Muslims visiting Darul Harb if they had safe passage. Hmm. And uh, even people in Darul Harb could visit Darul Islam, again, if they had safe passage. And if you think of Mecca and Medina, hmm. this went on. There were, hmm. um, this kind of thing happened, happened. But unfortunately, apart from that, the fiqh reflected the reality at the time is that if you did not have safe passage and if you were not in a land of peace, hmm you're at war and both sides were legitimately allowed to kill each other <laughs> you mm-hmm. know kill steal drop so that's why our fiqh texts are actually full of this stuff that if a muslim is in darul harb they're allowed to kill a kafir harbi you know a non-believer because they're at war and and take their possessions and now we have terrorist groups today who use exactly the same logic openly al-qaeda and isis hmm. in their fiqh they've declared the whole world as darul harb you the see? whole world the whole world except for any con- areas they've controlled, like Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan for a while, both these groups in Syria recently, or pockets of Libya and mm-hmm. Somalia. So there's this ideology behind the war, in, yeah, their, yeah, in, their, yeah. in their worldview. And they have used, they have referred to the classical Islamic medieval fiqh on this, which was a very different world completely. Yes. And that was the norm that everybody accepted. But the big problem is, is that they've ignored what's happened in the next... Uh, 1,000, 1,200 years, which I'll come on to in terms of how the fiqh has developed. But it's important for people to know, because I've heard it in Britain a lot, that this is Darul Harb and it, it's okay to kill. We, we had what I call takfiri. Some people call them jihadis. I don't like the word jihad, jihadi, because hmm. jihad is a noble concept, which we have to, which I believe we have to reclaim. But in the 80s, we had takfiris in Britain saying Britain is Darul Harb. So if a Muslim can get away with it, they're allowed to uh, to rob, steal from any non-Muslim. They're allowed to cheat the system and certainly cheat taxes and train tickets. But not only that, they're allowed to kill. 
somebody and and rob them, take all the possessions. And on top of that, if they wanted to rape a woman, a non-Muslim woman, and get away with it, they'd be allowed to do that because anything goes in Darul Harb. This was their idea. Because remember, in the old medieval world, armies sadly, when they conquered, mm-hmm. they would generally kill all uh, males, young men, eligible, eligible to fight. Yeah. The women would be enslaved in, uh, yeah. in sexual slavery. Yeah. And the Romans did this, the Persians did this, you know, every empire did this. Mm. Uh, and it's a very sad kind of period of human history. It, it, it was part of what happened. And, and the, Mus- the Muslims did that kind of thing, but with strict conditions. You had to treat slaves well and, uh, mm. and, and, and Islam, the Prophet strictly forbade killing women and children. Because in fact, the other empires would often just kill the women and children as well because they were a headache. Otherwise, you had to, you had to feed them yeah. or, or take them with you on your long journey back. And uh, so, you know, sadly, the, the medieval world was very brutal when it came to, when it came to war. And it's, it's, it's important for people to be aware of that, is that if, if people do not understand the fiqh, they, they give ridiculous and dangerous, you know, disgraceful fatwas like this, which, and by the way, it was that mindset is how ISIS recently justified the, the, the mass murder of Yazidis and Shia in Iraq and Syria, but also the mass enslavement and sexual slavery and rape of Yazidi women, because they said this is all justified uh, in our fiqh, not realizing that the fiqh is way out of date. You know, the world has moved on a thousand years. But uh, if I may, um, well, you know, after, after you've added your comments or any question or anything, I'd, I'd like to move on to how that early picture then developed. I, I'll fiqh. come back to this point, I think, of, of you're saying fiqh is out of date. Maybe we can come back to this point later on. Maybe you can continue uh, the, the elaboration of. Maybe I think. Uh, are you saying that this discussion? I was. I was. Has not evolved because I was reading actually your article uh, in which you mentioned about uh, Imam Ibn Taymiyyah and in 15th century when he was approached um, uh, for a fatwa. Uh, I, you know, I was just reading your article. So and then uh, he then introduced a third term. So. Uh, which um, is Dari Murakkab, Dari Murakkab. So maybe we can talk about that, that how those terms have evolved and how that understanding has evolved. Yes, thank you. So uh, thank you for bringing up Dari Murakkab because it's very important. I mean, growing up as a Muslim in Britain, in my experience, the vast majority of Muslim scholars, jurists, and certainly the general public, including Muslim leaders, community leaders, political leaders who are not aware of the religious, they have this general idea because it was the default for centuries, and our fiqh texts are full of it in all the madhabs. Darul Islam, Darul Kufr, Darul Harb, that's it. A lot of people are completely unaware of what happened in the 13th to 14th century. Imam Al-Taymi lived from 661 to 728 Hijri, and it's just coincidence, his Hijri date of death is 728, which was actually 1328 of the Western calendar. So he's 13th to 14th century. Now there was, in his time was a Mongol invasion, the famous Mongol invasion when they sacked Baghdad and killed the caliph, temporarily ended the Abbasid Caliphate and spread across the Muslim lands. It reached Syria and Egypt and would have sacked the holy city of Makkah and Medina, actually, hmm. if they hadn't been stopped at Syria and, and Egypt. And uh, they took over a large part of the, you know, Darul Islam, which was the Khilafah, the Caliphate at the time. One of those towns in Mardin, it is now modern-day Turkey, Muslim-majority town, yeah. taken over by these pagan Mongols. The Mongols were pagans. And... People from Mardin wrote to Ibn Taymiyyah saying, what do we do? 
is this Darul Islam or Darul Kufr now? Because traditionally, if you're in Darul Kufr, you have to migrate Hijrah. It was an obligation, mm. as far as possible, to, to leave and to join the land of Islam. So they said, are we supposed to all migrate and leave Mardin? And uh, how do we deal with the rulers? Because mm. they're not Muslim. And Ibn Taymiyyah gave a very, it's a very short fatwa, but um, it's very important because he introduced a new term and he gave an answer which to us today seems obvious, but in the 13th, 14th century, it was actually revolutionary because that's how mm. human thought evolves. He said, it's neither Darul Islam nor Darul Kufr, mm. but it's actually a mixture of the two. It's a bit of both. Mm. And he used the term Dar Murakkab. It's a compound or composite land. So it's a bit of Islam and a bit of Kufr. So he basically said, you know, you deal with the Muslims and the Muslim practice uh, as appropriate and you deal with the non-Muslim rulers as, as appropriate. Now, there was a similar incident a century later in, in Spain because Spain was being, re, uh, the, the Reconquista was happening in Spain, the Christian reconquest of, of Spain from the Muslims. And there's a town called Galera, Galera in Arabic. Galera is on the outskirts of Granada. Same thing happened, Muslim town now taken over by Christian rulers. And they wrote to the local scholars there. What's very interesting is that they do not appear to have been aware of Ibn Taymiyyah's fatwa a century or, uh, or more earlier, because they did not talk about Dar Morocco. Uh, some of them said, you have to migrate, you all have to do Hitra and leave. And, and live in Granada, because Granada held out for 200 years, remember, even when the rest of Spain had fallen. Uh, but one of the scholars, they even asked him his name, was gave a very interesting uh, fatwa. He said, you can stay there, but you must pay jizya to the Christians. He said, just pay them prote protection tax, which is very important. A lot of Muslims don't know this. Jizya is not a religious tax. It's a protection tax. It's a political tax. In fact, Imam Qurtubi says in his tafsir of the Quran, there's only one place where jizya is mentioned in the Quran. And in there he says, that one view is that jizya is originally a Farsi word, a Persian word, which is Arabized. So it was well known in the Persian Empire. That, and in fact, this is well known. Roman paying tributes, Byzantines, you know, it was a protection tax. And it seemed even the Asim understood that. Because if you ask most Muslims, or a lot of Muslims, sorry, should I say, and certainly Al-Qaeda and Daesh who brought back jizya, uh, ISIS, you know, that they think it's only for non-Muslims to pay to Muslims, no? In our history, it's there in black and white. In the 15th century of Islam, the great scholars of Spain saying to the Muslim, you pay jizya to the Christians, and you, as long as you have religious freedom, you're okay. So the, the Dar Morocco opens the door, it breaks the binary division between Islam and Kufr, and opens the door, because now we have complex multicultural, multi-religious societies. And uh, well, so did the Ottomans, and so did the Muslims for a while. So then, then from Dar Morocco, which is neither here nor there, if you like, it's the third category. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna add, add it here. Third, Dar Murakkab, which is a compound of composite land, a mixture of Darul Islam and Darul Kufur. And that opens up to later centuries where ideas of citizenship and democracy uh, come in. Well, do, do you have any any comments on that before we before we move on to, to democracy? I, I just have a general question, but, and this is partly based on your explanation that when we were, you, you said that the Muslims were obliged to migrate Hijra if if it was established that this is a Darul Kufr. Was this kind of um, like authority was derived from the state itself, or was it just a fatwa, like a religious authority, like a religious opinion, or it had some sanction of the law? This kind of uh, you mean Islamic authority in the, in Islamic, or, or Islamic law? In, in this, yeah. So so let's say if fit introduce it and this understood then did that distinction became a part of uh, siyasa 
Yeah. Or it 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 stayed only as a you know as fatwa only. So I, my understanding is that this was the overwhelming religious practice, the Muslim practice, based on the seer of the Prophet and with the way the rest of the world operated. It was the norm for the time. So, uh, you know, correctly speaking, the hijra, well, this is one view, the hijra is only obligatory if you're being persecuted. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, the, the hijras of the Sahaba, the hijra of the Prophet and the Sahaba, were under persecution. And the hijra to Medina was, of course, the second hijra. The first hijra was to, was to Abyssinia, of course, yeah, yeah, to Ethiopia. The, yeah. the Prophet sent the Sahaba there because they were the just king, he said, in his words, who was Christian. And, of course, Quraysh sent a delegation there to try to bring them back, mm-hmm. and uh, the Najashi refused. And so very clearly that was under persecution, there was that land of war mm. issue. But, uh, but under the peace treaty, yeah, it was different. Because famously in Hudaybiyah, one of the peace treaties which Sayyidina Umar opposed because he mm. thought this was weakness, but the Prophet accepted it, was that if a Muslim moved from Mecca to Medina, he would have to be returned to Mecca. Right. But if the vice versa happened, uh, a non-Muslim um, moved a mushrik or something, so, he moved so to I Mecca, that he, he is well, That history is well known. Yeah. But what is, at least to me, is is not not that known is like later part of the Muslim history. So in the yeah. let's say, yeah. 13th, 14th century, in, if Imam Taymiyyah uh, was asked for a fatwa, did did it become part of some kind of law? Or yeah, it, yeah. it didn't? No, I, I think the idea of hijrah, uh, the default had become that Muslims live under Darul Islam. Hmm. And in practice, that's where Muslims lived. Uh, so, you know, you, you look on the Middle East, North Africa, India, Spain, etc. Muslims would live under uh, a Khalifa or Sultan or their deputy, an, an Emir. And there was something parallel going on in Europe, by the way. You know, we talk about Christendom. The, the Christians were, were happy in, in Christian-majority countries. And, and Islam was far more tolerant because, mm. uh, you know, Jews were being uh, persecuted in, in Christendom, mm. in Western Europe, while they were relatively speaking, very well looked after mm. in, the, in Darul Islam. And so with the Christian, as long as they paid the jizya yeah. and accepted certain other conditions. So, so the default position was Muslims live under Darul Islam. And, and therefore, and the idea was kind of unthinkable. And of course, there's some hadith which say, do not live amongst the polytheists, you say, the mushrikeen. And many jurists extended that to all non-Muslims. Mm. But th- that, was the, that was the general sense, which is why it was such a shock when town started falling to, to non-Muslims. And it happened during the Crusades as well. That's mm-hmm. something I haven't researched actually, as to fatwas given during the Crusades, and I'd be happy to, uh, uh, yeah, if, if people can help us with that. But, but that, was the, that was the general understanding, and it wasn't just the Muslims, the Christians would have had that view as well. So what, what happens later, after Dar Morakab, etc., is in the Ottoman time, and of course the Ottoman was the yeah. most recent caliphate, lasted about five centuries from the 15th to the 20th century. And for centuries they had the famous millet system, hmm. where each millah or millet is a separate religious community. Muslims, Jews, Christians, maybe a few Zoroastrians uh, and others. So largely religious basis? Of- religious basis, they had their own laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. that was well known in the Muslim yeah. well, you know, the Muslim did not impose Sharia on Christian or Jews. Right. They allowed them to deal yeah. with their own, especially family court issues yeah. and other things. So the Ottoman millet system actually worked very well for its for its time. What is not so well known is in the last century, within the last century of the Ottoman experience, from about 1837 onwards, you had the famous Tanzimat reforms. Mm-hmm. And this is 1830s now, so we're talking about 50, 60, 40, 50, 60 years about after the American and French revolutions, 
with the ideas of liberté, égalité, fraternité, mm-hmm. and the new world and the republic, democracy, equality, mm-hmm. uh, equality, liberty, liberty, equality, fraternity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, were were revolutionary ideas and led to those revolutions. Now the Muslim world was listening to this. The Ottomans regarded themselves as a European state. This is Professor Ehsan, Ehsanuddin, uh, uh, Ekmaluddin Ehsanoglu, who, uh, who's written extensively about this. And, uh, you know, former head of the OIC for, for 10 years. Mm-hmm. He says very clearly, the Ottomans saw themselves as a European, European state. state. And so they were reading and listening avidly to what's going on in France mm-hmm. and America. And they mm-hmm. were clearly influenced by that because in the Tanzimat Declaration, they abandoned the millet system and they moved to a system of equal citizenship. They called it Othmania, Ottomanism. Hmm. And one of the sultans is on record, I think it's Sultan Abdul Hamid, I always forget which one. Around the 1850s, he gave a famous speech or declaration in which he said that all my subjects are equal. He said, I don't care whether you're Muslim, Jew or Christian. He said, you're all equal and you're all Ottoman citizens. Hmm. He said, the only difference is, is that Muslims go to the mosque on Friday, Jews go to the synagogue on hmm. Saturday, Christians go to the church on Sunday. Hmm. But he said, outside of your your religious places of worship, in other words, in the public space. You're all equal, there's no distinction. Now, people might argue that that was, may not have been there in practice, but it was certainly the, the, the stated intention. From, from Sultan himself, and Khalifa, it certainly become, probably, I, I assume it became, it attained a kind of legal authority. Yes, that was certainly the idea. That's what they were, because they realized that they were problem with the millet system of discrimination and they could see the power of the American and French ideas. And they had the Ottoman parliament at the end of the 19th century, which, uh, well, of course, you know, by that time, of course, the Ottoman Empire was a sick man of Europe, as they said, it was, was severely weakened in, in financial uh, crisis as well. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the Western Christian European colonial powers uh, were were happy to defeat their their uh, formidable enemy for centuries mm-hmm. and that led to the end of the Ottoman Empire but the point is that the idea of citizenship equal citizenship is is not is not just a western idea it is because the prophet said al-hikmatu dalatul mu'min anna wajadaha fa huwa ahqqu biha or it's related from the prophet uh, it's a, it's a, it's a related hadith but it, the meaning is certainly very correct yeah. it says wisdom is the lost property of the believer or the lost camel of the believer wherever they find it they have most right to it so any good idea, anything positive for humanity is, is, you know, Muslims should adopt. That's the idea. And that's where we come to something like the Marrakesh Declaration of three years ago, mm. led by Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya, or just the ideas of citizenship, uh, democracy, where the authority, you know, the, Muslim, the idea of the Muslims or, or any group of people, yeah, the Ottomans showed it can include the Jews and the Christian as part of that body, uh, have to order society based on revealed principles, but also using the intellect. Mm. And, and practical experience as to how best to organize the society. And at one time it was possible to have absolute authority in a caliph or a royal sultan, etc. But uh, with the increasing complexity of the world, it makes more sense to, uh, to also have parliaments or where you benefit from the expertise of as many people as possible. And, uh, and that's where democratic uh, principles yeah. come in, which arguably go back to Medina. In, ma- in many ways, Medina yeah, was very democratic. Exactly. I mean, before we come to Marrakesh Declaration, which is important uh, part of the modern historical developments, in our last segment, um, we have about 10 minutes uh, of this discussion. I would like to just ask your opinion on the current debate within the, within the fifth schools and within the... Uh, you know, traditional 
muftis, mazahib, like as of today, that this distinction of Dari Murakab was discovered by Ibn Taymiyyah and it, it, does, it has become part of the Islamic history. But then uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, inherited or accepted or mainstream. This idea itself doesn't seem to be accepted uh, you know, in majority of cases. And, and what I, you know, I, I think this, this distinction is, is important. Uh, but then, as I said, the large, if you, if you, if you listen to imams today, uh, they would still refer to this binary worldview. Yes. And so there's a big disconnect in what you're saying uh, was discovered, became part of this uh, Islamic tradition. And today's uh, mainstream religious discussions. Why is that? Well, thank you. I mean, that, that's, that's such an important question. And of course, the, there are many factors. But it seems to me one of the most important reasons why this happened is, is because of the colonial period and the dismantling, if you like, of the uh, Islamic civilization and empires. And there's been an attempt, as, as Muslim-majority countries have gained independence, there's been an attempt to reconstruct the past and there's been this search for authenticity and also the idea of renewal going back to the time of the Prophet himself or to the early generation of, of Muslims. So there's been a lot of emphasis on going back to the sources and that's included going back to early fiqh texts. So, and that's why the early fiqh texts, uh, you know, they reflect what was, as I said, probably ahead of its time, a very sophisticated theory of international relations. Uh, but it was a, a binary worldview. But as I said, you know, it had safeguards for other religious communities, which was probably unparalleled anywhere else in the world. However, I'll give mm -hmm. another example. The vast majority of the seminaries, Islamic seminaries in South Asia, for example, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, they, their curriculum is called the Darsa Nizami. Yeah. Right? And, and that goes back to Nizam al-Mulk, who was mm -hmm. the ruler uh, in uh, Persia at the time of Imam Ghazali. Right? So you, we're talking uh, mm -hmm. 5th century Hijri. Interesting. And, uh, and, and we're talking 11th century. We're talking about a thousand years ago almost. Mm -hmm. Darsa Nizami. The yeah. And, and that curriculum, you see, so although you know, many of the good madrasas, the Deoband and the Barelu and the Ahli Hadith and others, they are slowly updating their curricula. But until recently, they were still teaching a thousand-year-old curriculum, right? Mm. So they were just kind of bypassing what we're talking about has developed in the last seven centuries. Dar al-Murqab ibn Taymiyyah, the whole Ottoman reforms, mm. because the Ottoman Empire ended, actually, was dismantled. Sure. So a lot of that was lost, sadly. But it, it's, it's very important for people to revive that. And actually, the leading scholars, to be fair, Al-Azhar in, in Egypt, which is very influential in the Sunni world, I mean, I know Al-Azhar graduates, and they are, they are taught all these developments, and they fully support the modern nation-state hmm. situation, because uh, they're not saying it's the only and the, the best model. Hmm. What they're saying is it's not against Islam. It is acceptable Islamically to have modern nation-states. There's no obligation to have a caliphate. <coughs> you know, they're saying, so Abdullah bin Bayah, after the Marrakesh Declaration, he had an international conference in Abu Dhabi two years ago, where all the scholars agreed, leading scholars from around the world, that the a caliphate is not an obligation. Uh, it, if it can work well, you know, it might be nice, but there's nothing wrong with the modern nation state uh, as long as the Muslim states are not fighting each other. Mm. Because in Islamic history, there was a time when there were three caliphs, you know? You had yeah. a Khalifa in yeah. Spain, a Khalifa in yeah. Egypt, the Fatimids, and the Khalifa in Baghdad. And they were claiming to be the, so the I'll, caliph. I'll just bring the discussion <coughs> again to, to, to contemporary discussion. Uh, and um, uh, in, in that sense of... Um, uh, the, the challenges today 
How yeah. would you address the challenge today? In so you mentioned about the religious course. You mentioned mothers in Islami. How would you go reform reform these institutions? Yeah. So it, it's very important for the uh, for, for the Muslim scholars to to learn a wider range of of subjects. You know, including which they used to historically economics, mathematics, and astronomy, even medicine. People like Ibn Khaldun, Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim mastered all of these subjects as well as the religious subject and politics as well. And Ibn Khaldun was a political philosopher and economic philosopher, amongst many other things. The, the great Muslim scholars of the past were polymaths. You know, Ibn Sina, Ghazali, Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim, Shaltibi. As I said, they were religious scholars as well as being uh, astronomers, scientists, uh, doctors of medicine. And what we need to do is expand the religious syllabuses taught in our seminaries, which Al-Azhar is doing, Medina is doing, Deoband is doing. It, it is slowly happening. They are expanding their syllabuses, but it must include economics. For example, Ibn Khaldun and Ibn Taymiyyah had remarkable insights into economic theory, for example. They, they discussed many of the modern issues that we're still talking about. Big state v. small state, free markets versus um, state control. Ibn Taymiyyah discusses that in his uh, fatawa. So does uh, Ibn Khaldun, for example. A lot of that is not taught in the religious seminaries. We need them to recover that history and then of course politics as well. Both Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Al-Qayyim wrote books called Siyasat al-Shari'ah. So hmm. politics but you know within the religious framework uh, for believers, Islamic framework, Al-Farabi was a great political philosopher. But there's been a lot of developments as I said you know exponentially in the last couple of centuries and then contemporary scholars recognize that even Dar Muraqqab is out of date. Actually Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayyah is one of the most senior jurists alive today. He says Nigeria is an example of a Dar Murakkab because mm-hmm. Nigeria has a number of different states mm-hmm. and they have the power to make a lot of their own laws. So you have Muslim majority states in Nigeria which implement a form of Sharia and you have Christian states, Christian dominated states which don't have Sharia of course. And he says that's fine, that's an example of Dar Murakkab, it's one country. But if you like, there's, it's a mixture of Islam and, and Christianity, Islam and non-Islam. But actually, we have to go beyond that even, really. The Dar, Dar Morocco is even out of date. It's, it's seven centuries ago from Ibn Taymiyyah. What really is a modern idea is equal citizenship. As I said, the Ottomans had adopted this 150 years ago. With the end of their empire, those reforms went. And they weren't able to continue that project. But to be fair, you know, the uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah in Pakistan, for example, mm. Uh, and before him, Mawlana Muhammad Ali Johar, who was part of the, the independent struggle, they said very similar things. So Jinnah's famous speech when Pakistan was founded was, uh, you know, we're all equal with Pakistanis, yeah. although it's dominated by Muslims. But he said Hindus are free to go to their temples, Christians to their churches, Muslims to their mosques, but we are all equal citizens of Pakistan. And he recognized that the jizya, he insisted, Jinnah, that there would be no special tax for non-Muslims, so that the jizya uh, was abolished. It was abolished a century before him by the Ottomans. In the Tanzimat reforms, they officially abolished the jizya and the category of dhimma. They said, this is now out of date and it does not apply anymore. And now a lot of Muslim groups have a problem with that. They think because jizya is mentioned in the Quran that it's some kind of religious obligation and must be brought back. What they don't know is Imam Qurtubi said, this is a political tax, it's not a religious tax. It's a protection tax which was known before Islam. And Arguably, according to one view, the word jizya itself comes from Farsi, from the hmm. Persian Empire. So if it worked, then it worked well. Yeah. The protection tax in all empires, including jizya, in my view, worked very well. But um, now we have the conditions for democracy, especially in our technological age. And 
worldwide transfer information and international treaties, most importantly, United Nations International Treaty Against Religious Discrimination against uh, for Human Rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, etc. So that people don't have to pay to get uh, yeah. human rights. They just pay their taxes like everybody else as citizens and everybody is entitled to, uh, to those equal human rights. So, and if, and not just from my perspective, the, the contemporary scholar Recep Senturk in Turkey, he points out that when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was issued in 1948, a number of leading Islamic scholars in Turkey wrote papers arguing that the UDHR was entirely compatible with Islam or Islam, mm. the, the spirit of Islam would support entirely the spirit of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Equality for everybody, no discrimination, no torture, individual rights, communal rights, all, all of it. They said this is completely Islamic. And that, that, I think that is a fundamental idea that we, we Muslims are moving towards, is to recover the Sharia as ethics, firstly, then, then law. Because law, once it's written, you know, can become fossilized and, and doesn't move on. But Sharia is actually about ethics. The maqas of the Sharia theory is about the ethics, the universal values, what is Islam yeah. all about? And, and, and ijtihad, you know, all of this is ijtihad. Imam Shaybani early on, he's early on, but that was ijtihad. Ibn Taymiyyah in the, in the 7th century of Islam or 8th century of Islam came up with a new situation. He did ijtihad, Dar Murakkab. The Ottomans then saw the world was now changing. They had the millet system and that worked well for a few centuries and then it was not fit for purpose. So they abandoned it. And the ijtihad said equal citizenship, Ottomanism. And, and now we just have to continue that. I think what I, I, I'd like to conclude here, Dr. Osama, what you are saying is a very powerful message. You are saying Sharia uh, as a code of ethics and Sharia as a code of law are two different things. While we have fossilized our uh, thoughts around a strict, rigid uh, code of law, that is not the makasid of Sharia. That is, uh, you know, that, that, that must that goes beyond it. I think this this is an important message. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the most important messages for Muslims, especially discussion around Sharia. Sharia essentially is the path to God. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so, and it is based on welfare for people, goodness in this world and the hereafter. Yeah. So political, but personal, political, economic mm-hmm. welfare, but also spiritual welfare for the hereafter. And Shirid Ghazali, Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Al-Qayyim, you know, Alam Al-Waqayyim, Imam Shatibi, they all agreed on this principle that uh, if, if a law, no matter how good the intentions or the history behind it, if a law results in injustice, it is not Islamic. Mm-hmm. So, for example, for example, hudud laws of corporal and capital punishment, you know, flogging, amputation, etc. If misapplied, if applied wrongly, mm-hmm. you know, without giving the benefit of the doubt, because in all the fiqh texts, mm-hmm. if there's the slightest doubt or suspicion, you don't have enough witnesses, mm-hmm. or the, you must, you cannot establish the hudud. If you misapply this, it becomes injustice. So, you know, people get harsh sentences. You know, women who get raped get flogged for zina. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. That's not zina. It's, it's not even, uh, uh, you know, of their own accord. They were forced, for God's sake. I mean, so uh, if, if they're raped, there's no intention there, you know. But around the Muslim majority worlds, we've seen in the last century horrific cases of women being flogged and even executed. Um, and, and that's an example of a so-called Islamic law when misapplied actually being injustice and therefore non-Islamic. And in fact, it goes back to the Prophet himself. If, if, and if they're not applied equally for the sake of justice, the Prophet famously said that uh, in Jahiliyyah, they used to, they would amputate the hand of a, of a thief when he was poor, but if he was rich and noble, 
they would let him go. And he said, that's jahiliyyah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to name countries, but there are countries where the rich and powerful get away with all kinds of crimes, but the hudud are only applied mm-hmm. on poor people. And I, I would argue, according to the hadith of the Prophet himself, that is jahiliyyah, that's not Islam. And of course, famously, Sayyidina Umar, when there was a famine, he, he suspended, suspended, he suspended yeah. the had penalty. No, I think this uh, is again a very important for stealing. And by the way, Azhari scholars today, over the last 50 years, have said, uh, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya has said, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya has said that uh, international treaties, the United Nations treaties, have made the application of Hudud very difficult, if not impossible, actually. And also the Azhari scholars have, have said that the modern conditions, the, modern, the way the modern world is, uh, that uh, it's impossible to, to uh, implement amputations, floggings, uh, crucifixion even, because that's mentioned in the Qur'an. You know, it will, it will cause injustice, and therefore there is no way to apply them justly, and, and, and therefore we have to stop talking about them. We can do alternatives, imprisonment, fines, also rehabilitation, all the rest of it. And that's another, that's a, that's a different discussion actually. But it, it's again, it relates to Sharia's ethics, because the spirit of the hudud is about punishment, deterrence, but also rehabilitation, tawbah. All the verses of the Qur'an which talk about punishment, they say, illa man taba, illa so there's a lot of uh, no, I'm sure that we can we can have another podcast another discussion exactly on that that topic and by the way which is also strangely strangely enough remain very current in Malaysia that the discussion on hudud still remains relevant there have been political expression in favor of it and uh, I, I'm sure these kind of thoughts can help improve our understanding about how Islam should be interpreted in a, in a modern context. Dr. Osama, thank you so much for joining us um, for this uh, very enlightening and very insightful uh, podcast and you are sharing your thoughts. Um, and I hope that uh, listeners have also enjoyed um, this, this discussion and uh, I look forward to the comments later on. Thank you. It's been an honor to talk to you today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Okay, assalamu alaikum. Thank you. Okay, salam. And that wraps up this week's episode of Islam and Liberty podcast. So, if you'd like to learn more about us, come visit us on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can donate to us through our website. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you next week.